I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at 2nd and 3rd John, and then the book of Jude. In 2nd John, we have warnings against antichrists. Verse 1, The elder unto the elect lady, and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. In our last New Testament reading, we looked at 1 John. Now, this is a second and separate letter from John. He reinforces his theme of 1 John. Nobody knows the identity specifically to whom this letter is addressed. She is simply referred to as elect lady. However, the purpose of the letter is very clear. As in his first epistle, 1 John, John is still dealing with the same false doctrines in this second epistle. His emphasis on the truth in verses 1, 2, and 4 emphasize the errant nature of two particular characteristics of the doctrine that he's combating, that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. We see that plainly in verse 7. And secondly, the dismissal of the importance of brotherly love as seen in verses 5 and 6. These characteristics of errant teaching were prominent in John's first epistle as well. I think verses 9 through 11 offer a significant enhancement to his words in 1 John. 2 John 9 through 11 says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Well, you know, so much for political correctness. John says that we should treat false teachers with zero hospitality. So just how serious was this errant teaching that John's combating here? Well, there's your answer in verse 7. 
For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So these false teachers were teaching something other than the deity of Jesus Christ and his fulfillment of the requirements of Messiahship. These biblical truths may not be denied while retaining fellowship with believers. I mean, it's just that simple. Interestingly enough, John is the only writer in the Bible to use the term Antichrist. He used it once here and three times in 1 John. John had previously written in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and now already is in the world. We get a glimpse of these particular false prophets' message in verse 2 when he says, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. The inverse is stated in verse 3. These false prophets obviously preached a message that Jesus was all spirit, no flesh. That was a Gnostic doctrine. Here's the point. Jesus came as the Messiah, the flesh and blood Messiah. To teach that Jesus was anything less than that is just pure heresy. Let me clarify something. This is not the only doctrinal issue for which, uh, which when someone denies it, that we as believers should break fellowship. There are others. And we typically call those fundamentals of our faith. So you might ask, what are the fundamentals of our faith? Well, let me broadly describe them like this. Inspiration of the scripture. The deity, virgin birth, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace alone through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross the physical return of Jesus Christ, and finally, the existence of the literal heaven and hell. So, while I break it down into five, those are broad categories of doctrines which we consider part of our fundamentals of our faith. John's second epistle focuses primarily on just one of these fundamentals, and that's the identity of Jesus Christ. It was obviously the fundamental widely under attack among the recipients of John's second epistle. You will notice in verse 4 that John command, commends them for walking in truth. However, as seen in verses 9 through 11, he's concerned about these false teachers wearing away at their spiritual resolve. When believers entertain faith-threatening doctrines, it's a faith-weakening experience. Discouragement follows and joy is arrested. How many believers do you know have fallen out of close fellowship with God and other believers? over a discouraging set of circumstances regarding their walk with the Lord. John issues a warning of the consequences in verse 8 when he says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Well, lose what, you might ask? He's not talking about salvation, but rather rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. You can look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, see my commentary there on Bible track and get an idea of what those uh, rewards and what that judgment seat of Christ is all about. With regard to the actual judgment scenario and rewards given, Paul explains it very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-15. through 15. That brings us to 3 John, where we see that John is again dealing with evil workers. Verse 1, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth 
Beloved, I wish of all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which ye have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. John's talking on the teaching of false doctrine here once again. He dealt with the same issue back in 1 John as well as in 2 John. We don't really know much about uh, Gaius here, the man to whom the letter was addressed. Obviously, he's an influential man there in the church. The key verse is verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. As a matter of fact, the word true is used once here in these 14 verses, and the word truth is used six times. John is not expressing doctrinal opinions in degrees here. Doctrines are either true or they're false. It's worth noting that this letter is written specifically to Gaius for delivery to the church. Apparently, John's communications to the church had previously been blocked by a man named Diotrephes. We see that in verse 9. It would appear that this epistle serves as a warning against this man and this man's teaching. So what do we know about this evil man, Diotrephes? Well, we see in verse 9 that he loved to have the preeminence. We see in verse 9 also that he prevented John's communications with the church. With regard to John himself, Diotrephes was guilty of prating against us with malicious words. John's words in verse 10. Diotrephes also prevented others from receiving John and other brethren in Christ. We see that again in verse 10. And finally, he excommunicated from the church those who received John and the other brethren in Christ. We see that also in verse 10. So, what about this man, Diotrephes, teaching false doctrine? Well, notice verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Well, that's a similar warning to the one he gave back in 2 John verses 9 through 11. The phrase in that verse, he that doeth evil, is just one word in the Greek. It's kakopoeo, and it's a present active participle specifying a continuing action. So this false teacher continually practices evil. 
John is very harsh with his words towards false teaching here. But Jude goes into greater detail regarding these false teachers' motivation. We're going to see that in the next chapter, well, the next book, the book of Jude. John closes out with his intentions to come for a visit and straighten things out there at the church. That brings us to the book of Jude. And Jude has a warning against apostasy. Verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. This epistle was written by Jude, probably the Jude who was the half-brother of Jesus. The date of the writing is somewhere between 40 and 80 A.D. It's a letter to believers as seen in verses 1 and 2. In his letter, Jude describes three attributes to believers. The first one is sanctified. It's from the Greek word hagiadzo. It's a verb which means to set apart or to make holy. As a matter of fact, the Greek noun form of that root is hagias, which literally means and is translated saints. In other words, a believer is set apart for an eternity in heaven as a saint of God. The second attribute that he uses for believers is preserved. It's from the Greek verb tereo, which uh, means literally to keep or to guard. After salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells believers and seals their salvation eternally. Look at my commentary on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24 for some further details. And thirdly, believers are called. That's the Greek word kletos. It's an adjective which means invited or chosen. Jesus said in John 6:44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the process whereby the Holy Spirit convicts one of sin, thus prompting them to receive Jesus Christ as one Savior. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unaware who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into a lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses 3 and 4 here, Jude gives the purpose for writing his epistle. It's to warn against these ungodly men who have been ordained of old unto condemnation. So his message, avoid apostates. That's Luke's clear warning here. Preserve the faith. Persevere in the faith. Notice the severe tone Jude takes with these false teachers. It's a no-mercy book about dealing with these wicked, wicked people. In his letter here, Jude uses the term common salvation to describe the vehicle whereby believers are counted righteous before God. The Greek adjective koinos is used only ten times in the New Testament, most often to describe that which is unclean by conventional standards. Jews consider Gentiles common, as seen in Peter's experience with the Gentiles of Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. The Greek word koinos is used there to describe non-kosher foods and the Gentile people in general. Those Gentile people in Acts chapter 10 received Christ as Savior upon Peter's visit. Thus, the salvation of God that includes Jews and Gentiles alike is appropriately called the common salvation. 
Later in verse 3, he simply refers to it as the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That simple salvation message of faith in Christ was under attack by these apostates. They sought to complicate salvation, but that's not the extent of their false teaching. They also promoted lasciviousness. The Greek word there is aselgia, which means conducting uh, oneself without any moral restraint. That along with the doctrine that Jesus was not deity is kind of the clincher on this false doctrine issue with Jude. Likewise, John dealt with these same issues in 1 John as well as in 2 John and then again in 3 John. It's noteworthy that Jude points out that these apostates arrived in the midst of these believers by having crept in unawares. In other words, they seemed to be doctrinally compatible coming in, but turned out instead to be men who were ordained to this condemnation. Now remember this, every false doctrine has just enough truth associated with it to make it appealing. It is vitally important that believers look at every aspect of the basic teachings of any teacher before they embrace his false teaching. Verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude points out in verses 5 through 7, those who defy sound doctrine are condemned, just as some other notable people found in the Old Testament. First of all, the non-believing Israelites coming out of Egypt. Secondly, he mentions the fallen angels, perhaps a reference to Revelation 12, verse 4, or perhaps a reference to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Then finally, he makes reference to the condemned folks in the twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. That's obviously a reference to Genesis chapter 19. These examples serve to drive home the danger of judgment facing those who do likewise. Now verse 8, Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feast of charity, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 8 further identifies the wicked deeds of these apostates. Jude makes it clear in verse 8 that our responsibility is to shun apostasy and the apostates themselves while turning the battle over to God. However, in verses 10 through 13, we see that the believers to whom Jude is writing 
were apparently tolerant of these apostates to the extent that they enjoyed full fellowship with them. Notice that specifically in verse 12, he says, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Jude's statement of verse 9 regarding Michael and the body of Moses cannot be found elsewhere in Scripture. Don't know what that's about specifically. Some scholars have concluded that Jude is citing a Jewish apographical pseudepigraphical work referred to as the Assumption of Moses, also known as the Testament of Moses. The only extant copy of that manuscript dates to the 6th century AD, and it's written in Latin. It may or may not be a translation of a manuscript that existed in Jude's day in Greek or Hebrew. However, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude was compelled to reference an incident that involved a dispute between Michael and Satan regarding the body of Moses. In doing so, Jude may or may not have been referencing an extant document at the time of his writing. Nonetheless, Jude's inclusion of this incident is enough evidence for us to conclude that there was indeed a dispute. In verse 11, three men get dishonorable mention. That's Cain in Genesis chapter 4, Balaam in Numbers chapter 22, and Kor, or Korah, in Numbers chapter 16. All three men epitomize rebellion against God. Hospitality toward those who blatantly rebel against God in the name of God is not acceptable, according to Jude here in verses 12 and 13. These are notoriously unregenerate men who falsely presented themselves as having a relationship with God. The uh, Feast of Charity mentioned in verse 12, were communal meals in which the early church apparently ate together and observed the Lord's Supper. The fact that these false teachers were not forbidden from dining with the brethren on such occasions as listed here is an indictment against the leadership of the church there. The vivid metaphorical description of the spiritual status of these men in verses 12 and 13 can leave little doubt about these men as being unregenerate for whom are as it says, reserve the blackness of the darkness forever. Well, I tell you, that sounds like eternal damnation to me. Definitely unregenerate men here. Further evidence of their spiritual state is seen in the verses that follow. Look at verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his angels to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life and of some have compassion making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the 
only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Amen. Verse 14 here has caused some controversy among Bible teachers as well. Jude seems to quote from the book of Enoch here. The event accurately describes the return of Christ in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, which probably hadn't been written yet by John. So if Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, why is that book not included in our canon of scripture? Well, perhaps the number one reason is that it did not exist as a manuscript in its original language. The only copy that exists today is one translated into Greek. The Jewish scholars were meticulous about the integrity of the writings they included in the canon of Scripture. One of those criteria was the existence of the book in its original language, not Greek. Nonetheless, Jude seems to quote from that book a well-established truth regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes favorably from Epimenides, a Cretan poet and philosopher from the 6th century B.C., who was widely believed to be a religious prophet. From this, we should deduct two truths. First, just because it is not part of the canon doesn't make it not so. And secondly, just because a book is quoted in Scripture doesn't mean it should be included in the canon of Scripture. So, uh, Jude... What is it you really think about these false teachers? Well, there's your answer at verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Verses 17 to 19 identify these men as mockers and as those who walk after their own ungodly lust. Moreover, and here's the clincher, verse 19 says of them regarding their relationship with God, having not the Spirit. Romans 8 9 says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's not of his. Well, alrighty then. Do we just write them off? Verses 20 to 23 seems to indicate that mature believers should make an attempt to present saving faith to them. Notice the reference to pulling them out of the fire in verse 23. That's right, give them the gospel message. After all, Romans 10:17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Many will reject the truth, but some may receive Christ. Here's the simple message of Jude. No tolerance for apostates. So much for showing an appreciation for diversity when it comes to religion. But what about their influence over believers? Verse 24 is our security verse. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. My salvation does not depend upon my abilities, but my salvation depends on the abilities of Christ. It's Jesus Christ who keeps me saved, and it's Jesus Christ who will safely deliver me to heaven. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.